Hello, and welcome to Dope Conversations Podcast. I am your host, Bikita Pegram, and I am going to give you something to think about. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back, y'all. We are in season two. After a nice and much needed break, we are back. And I came in with a bang. I said, oh, excuse me. I said I was not going to take it light on y'all and ease you in. We're just going to go right for it. And today we are going to talk about what's going on in HBCUs with this new influx of Black athletes returning to HBCUs. I, being a Jackson State alum twice, like to credit Deion Sanders with that. I know some other people will disagree with me, and you have a right to, but I'm still right because it's my show. (laughs) But Jackson State had the forethought to bring in Deion Sanders, and he has been an electric force on our campus. But That is not the only coach that is doing great things. We see several HBCUs benefiting from the new spotlight on HBCUs. And we at Jackson State actually got the number one draft pick, Travis Hunter, which made a lot of noise because some PWIs were not happy and they took to Twitter to make their unhappiness known. So I wanted to... Bring in Dr. Hawkins in. I was watching a news station, and I don't even think he knows this. Um, He was speaking, and I was like, wow, that's who I need to have on the show to talk about this, what's going on, the trend in sports, because he's doing the work. He's doing the research on it. He's written books. Um, The book, which is the title of the episode, caught my attention for sure. The New Plantation. Now, if that is not dramatic and eye-catching, I don't know what you need to want to hear this show, but that should be enough. So at this time, I would like to thank Dr. Hawkins and welcome Juan. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm greatly, um, you know, excited about this opportunity and look forward to our discussion. Yeah, I think the title in itself is going to catch some people because when I saw the title of your book, I said, well, that's the title of the episode. (laughs) I'm not even going to try to think of something clever. That's it. So can you tell us a little bit about your research on black athletes? Well, one of the things I've tried to do is to connect the experiences of black student athletes, um, mainly at predominantly white campuses or historically white campuses, um, to a broader socio-historical perspective of blacks in general. So what I'm basically saying is that um, what is going on with black athletes on collegiate campuses is not an isolated occurrence in terms of the historical period. So we see patterns of exploitation of the black body, which is, has been a historical pattern since I was so joined in this country. Right. So that's one of the things I wanted to try to do is connect that those experiences to that um, long history of um, labor exploitation, um, um, racial abuse, psychological abuse, all of those different types of tension I've tried to connect. All right. I also, you know, want to, um, 
you know, sort of um, tell the story, you know, tell the story of a lot of athletes that, you know, aren't able to, you know, don't have the time or may not, you know, um, desire to necessarily voice their opinions in, in a, a sort of a research context. But I want to tell their story of some of the challenges they're facing, some of the triumphs that they're facing at these predominantly white institutions, overcoming racism, isolation, all of those different types of factors that I've, I've written about. So I want to do that. I think that one of the most rewarding things I've received was uh, when student athletes come up who have read the book and say, hey, Doc, you, 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 you know, you really told my story, what I was going through, what I was experiencing um, at, at this institution. And it really meant a lot to me. So those are some of the things I've tried to do. And I think that's important because some of the comments that you see on social media when you hear athletes try to tell their own story is shut up and drivel. Exactly. Um, you're making millions of dollars. You should be grateful. Um, why are you complaining? You get to go to school for free. And so right. I think where there is compensation for their gifts and their talents, they have been taken or snatched their opportunity to tell their journey there and their experience mm-hmm. in that moment, in that space. And I think that's unfair. Right. Right. Yeah, they're seen as as athletic entity. They're, they're not seen as intellectual beings, uh, you know, so or political beings, mm-hmm. you know. So therefore, the only expectation they have of them is to run this football, you know, block these for these, you know, runners or whatever the case may be, or shoot, like you say, shut up and dribble, you know. Right. So I think those are some of the challenges that they face, you know, and, and when they are vocal or when they do speak up, you know, what happens, right? right? They're ostracized. They're, you know, um, given labels of like being Muhammad radical. Ali. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so. I, I think one thing um, society tends to do with all black entertainers, and I kind of group athletes under entertainers because in a way they, they're, you know, they entertain us. But yes. I think what they often do, society often does, is, okay, so now that you've made it to this level you don't have to worry about the problems of the black neighborhoods. So why are you speaking on it? Right. Right. And I think that's unfair because just because they've made it, they still have friends and family and love for their communities. Right. Right. And many of them are still connected, you know, even though they may not live there. Right. Mm -hmm. There is that connection. As you say, they, they, they migrated from these communities, um, but there's still that attachment where they have friends and family that are still there and their, their heart, you know, when you talk about a lot of their allegiance is still there and, you know, a lot of them develop programs, you know, to assist in those areas. Right. So that brings me to number two. Why do you think now black athletes are returning to HBCUs? You know, I already told you what I thought. It's because (laughs) Dion and Jackson state is the best university in the whole wide world. (laughs) We are the, I love why wouldn't you want to go there? <laughs> but right, right. what is the research, though? <laughs> you know, Jackson State, it, it, they, they do have it going on. I uh, visited Jackson State. I did a program review there. And it is a nice campus, you know, nice program, nice faculty members there. You know, I really enjoyed my stay there. Um, but I think one of the things is HBCUs, for the longest, you know, since their inception, have been jewels, right? And I think a lot of times, you know, um, we've overlooked those, especially when you talk about the economic 
impact that, you know, white institutions have had. When you talk about building these athletic cathedrals, huge right. institutions, you know, so, you know, obviously um, students are allured to that. Student athletes are allured to that. You know, when you talk about the big facilities, training facilities, um, you know, that different types of fringe benefits they receive in terms of um, training and, and all of that. And, and, you know, this whole notion of access to the next level, right? you know, um, however, I think though all of that is changing, right? With the, you know, um, when you think about Deion Sanders at um, Jackson State, Eddie George at uh, Tennessee State, and, and other, you know, leading um, professional athletes that have, you know, now converting their athletic capital into coaching capital, yes. right? And, you know, um, bringing a different type of media attention, right? Uh, you know, the success, the, the talent has always been at HBCUs. Right. Yeah. It's just a matter of getting the right type of exposure I that's totally necessary. <clears throat> you I know, totally so I think the athletes are seeing that, you know, I think one. So that's one of the things I think the other thing is when you talk about the racial tension. Right. That has um, emerged in this country or reemerged at a, you know, a, a, a unbelievable level. All right. When you talk about the murders of black men and women. Right. I think that has um, created a, a, an impetus for black athletes to think about safe places, safe spaces and safe places to, to, to you know, exert their athletic abilities. And HBCUs have been that for, for many occasions. And I think they're taking advantage of that. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, when you just going back to the safe spaces part, it's already hard to go to college. College is not easy. If it was, right. everybody would do it. It's it, it's hard on a social level, political level, economic level. There's going to be struggles. So when uh-huh. you think about all the struggles that you have to face, if you can remove some of that, yes. why not? And still yes. get the same output and still get the same advantages that you would get at going at a predominantly white institution, why not eliminate the race struggle? Because mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. often at an HBCU, you are in a comfortable bubble to just be able to be culturally and ethnically you. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> I study um, uh, a, a, f- a former student of mine who, who's now a phenomenal scholar, Dr. Uh, Joseph Cooper, um, led. We, we did a couple studies looking at the transfer of black student athletes from predominantly white institutions to HBCUs. And we also looked at the experiences of um, black student athletes um, at HBCUs. And one of the things, some of the things they talked about is the holistic experience, um, especially those that transferred from a PWI, predominantly white institution. And they talked about, you know, the whole, whole this experience. Uh, some of them talked about, you know, how um, it was a lot, e- their social life was a lot easier, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, because some of the things, you know, I, I worked at the, the University of Iowa as a graduate student and worked with athletes. And, you know, <clears throat> one of the major things that I was challenged with, I was, you know, I had to work with the, what they considered the at-risk student athletes, you know, so I had to make sure they go to class, you're studying, so on and so on. And they would always complain to me about, you know, walking across the campus, how that was just hard, you know, because there was, you know, one of few of, you know, you're talking about University of Iowa and Iowa City, ain't that many blacks, ain't right. that many blacks in the state of Iowa, right? right? So it was a challenge, right? And, you know, sitting up in the classroom, they talked about how they feel that felt, felt so, um, you know, isolated and, you know, um, sort of exposed, right? Because, mm-hmm. again, all eyes were on them as, you know, why are you here? You know, you're a big athlete, you know. So there was a lot of tension, 
you know, in that social space, right? That um, once they, the, the athletes that we've interviewed talked about, you know, they didn't, they didn't feel that. It was a level of comfort socially, right? Um, they didn't feel like a, just another number. They felt like, you know, they were actually being seen for who they are, like male, right? So I think there are add a lot of added benefits. And I think that's a plus terms. because when you think about these large institutions, Every student is not going to thrive in that environment because you mm-hmm. are sometimes just a number. Right. I know myself, um, HBCU was a blessing because I don't like crowds. I don't mm-hmm. like being around a lot of people. So to say that I would be one in a classroom of two to three hundred, that would have closed me all the way off. But being mm-hmm. in a classroom of one to 30, that's normal. That's a public school every day. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I could do that and still learn more about me and learn what I was supposed to do while I was there. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that is one of the pluses of HBCUs. But I think, like you said, just that not having to worry about being black. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, when you wake up, if we really wrote down how many times we had to think about being black, you probably would get tired of counting. It probably would like count peace. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's second nature now, right? right. You know, it's something right. we just have to do. Walking in stores, you know, just um, you know, if we're living in a you know mixed community, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Houston, I still have to be conscious of it wherever I'm, you know, moving about in the city. So, right. so I think just eliminating eliminating some of that pressure and stress of being a black athlete does come when you go to an HBCU. And I, I can agree yeah. that's probably one of the biggest reasons for the return next to Dion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, another interesting thing is, you know, similar to what you're saying, they talked about this idea of, you know, being known by the professors, you know, and being able mm-hmm. to interact, you know, with the professors and how the professors saw them as students, you know, first instead of as athletes, you know, so... Those are some important things, you know, when you talk about that interaction, academic interaction and being made to be known or felt is is important. Well, because, you know, at a smaller university, you're talking about the professor is actually able to get to know you. Mm -hmm. I know Mm -hmm. that your mom is working three jobs to help you through school. So when you don't come to class, Professor P is calling you, "Um, baby. You know, mama, mama love you, but you got to come to class because your mama spent a lot of money for you to come here. Whereas at a bigger institution, they wouldn't know that about you and that that bigger institutions are bad because some people are going to thrive in that environment. But I think they have there has to be more than one type of environment so that everyone can thrive. Exactly. I agree. So what steps do you think football programs, professional and college level need to consider when they are recruiting black athletes and as far as um, equity and equality in athletics. What do you think when they recruit these young men, what do you think needs to be talked about? I think there has to be uh, um, honest about the nature of their business at, at the professional level. I think it's clear, you know, that this is a business and you're here to do a job. Right. Right. And, um, so, so that's that's clear at the professional level. At the collegiate level, I think it's a little bit much more complex because education is thrown in there, or the allure of education. But I think coaches they 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 have to be clear on letting these athletes know that you're here, you're recruited to play football, you're recruited to do a job, and you have the opportunity to get an education. education. 
Yeah. You know, um, because yeah. that's that's what it is. You know, it like is. education is a guarantee. You know, it's um, it's and that's one of a lot of things I tell recruits coming in. You have to be intentional about getting your education piece because they're going to get their athletic piece out of you. Right. You know, and they they're going to make sure you perform on that field. You know, you're going to be in practice every day. You're going to be in the training. You're going to do everything is necessary. And not just one practice. You. Yeah. Yeah. See, and they you're right. Um, I'm coming from a football mom's point of view. My son uh, attended a D3 program. And even at that program, and mm-hmm. I say that because, you know, they say, oh, D3, you know, it's not as competitive as D1. But. So I'm looking at the things that my son is having to do, the 6 a.m. practice, go to class, lunch, midday practice, go to class, and then come to a coach's meeting in the evening. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I can only imagine the pressure (laughs) that is going on at a D1 school because he called me. He said, Ma, you can't work doing this. No. So think about those students that are coming from low-income backgrounds that really need to work to help pay for books. Yeah. The pressure that these students are feeling and you might be riding a bench. You're not even playing. Yeah. 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 I, I worked at a division three school up in Wisconsin lacrosse and, and it was a top rated program. You know, they won, you know, sort of the division three championship for several years. And it was, it was no joke. It was work. You know, they weren't getting a scholarship, like as you said, but they still expected you to be at every practice, you know, I was working in strength and conditioning. They wanted you to be at the strength and conditioning facility. They, you know, um, it was a full-time job. It is. You know, and they made sure they got it out you, you know, oh, yeah. in order for you to perform that Saturday, right? Um, and I think a lot of programs aren't that intentional about that educational piece. Yeah, they're going to have, you know, academic student services, you know, to make sure you stay eligible, but they're not going to be pushing that educational piece as much as they push the athletic piece. And And rightfully so. Yeah, but that's where the transparency needs to come. Yeah, yeah, they have to be honest, you know, because coaches' salaries are tied to what? Winning. Yeah. Right. And winning the right games, winning bowl games, getting to, you know, college football playoffs. You know, that's what their salaries are tied to. Right. And their success. OK. Now, there are some, you know, I, I've yet to see a coach that was fired because they didn't graduate athletes. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, or they did get a certain GPA. Now, they'll get a bonus. Right. You know, their salary if they get, graduate so many, make a certain, you know, GPA, you know, they, they get a bonus for that. But yeah. yeah, they're not going to get fired if they're winning and they're successful. That's what they you want. Know, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So definitely they have to be, you know, they have to be honest and upfront about that. And, and you know, um, the the other equity piece, when you talk about leadership, I think that's, that's a, a whole different dynamics when you think about sort of the migration of athletes from certain positions, you know, because, you know, when you think about head coaching positions, Mm -hmm. right, I think there has to be some honesty there. I think one of the things that the Brian Flores situation showed is that there's a lack of honesty, even with rules in place and policies in place, you know, there's no guarantee. Right. They're, they're going to find loopholes to get the end result. Despite the equity piece, they're going to find the loophole (laughs) to get what they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think my um my next and last question for you is this, and it kind of ties into what we're talking. So to ensure that mom and dad can 
look out for the best interests of their students, what can they do? What should black athletes and their families consider when they look at the future of college athletics? So they're choosing between schools. What should be that deciding factor to say, okay, this is the school for you? Yeah, I think uh, fit is important. When you talk about psychological fit, emotional, intellectual fit, you know, spiritual fit, if you want to add that in in there as well for aspiring college athletes. And um, they have to look at the holistic perspective of that university. You know, one of the things, and I think we have to deconstruct this whole notion of the white man's water is colder. Right. Um, and this whole idea that the white is the standard of excellence. Right. The white man's education is better. You know, white women's mm-hmm. beauty. We have to deconstruct all of that yeah. and and begin to understand that there are some excellent programs, academic programs at HBCUs. I, I know of a lot of excellent um, faculty members, professors at these institutions, administrators. And I think, you know, uh, parents need to understand that, you know, it's about the fit for their kid and they know it best, right? You know, okay. you can, yeah, you can send little Johnny, little Sally Sue on to a PWI and they can be, you know, successful, right? But when you talk about their well-being, their social and psychological well-being, intellectual well-being and who you, you're placing them in the hands of, they have to consider that, taking that, take that in consideration. That's for sure. And how, um, it, it, it behooves them then to consider how HBCUs it, it is the, the um, sort of the best route for a lot of our young men and women, you know, because of, you know, the fit is there. Right. right. Um, uh, you know, a lot of again, we also have to deconstruct this idea that, you know, you're not going to get seen if you want to get to the next level. You're not going to yeah. be seen. And that, that's not necessarily the case. You know, right. and I think parents need to understand that if you're good, your kid is good. Right. They're going to they're be found. Exactly. Right. Walter Payton didn't have yeah. social media. Right. Oh, right, he was a right. Jackson State alum, too. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just doing that to mess with my viewers because they know I love my D.I. love. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your research. Parents, this is for you. This show was for you because I feel like you needed to know how to get your students to the best school for them. So like Dr. Hawkins said, for one, find the best fit for your student. You know your student. I knew my son. My son is distracted by a bug on the wall and he gonna look and see what is he doing. He did not need that big atmosphere. And after his first semester, he said, Ma, I'm glad you put your foot down and kind of geared me. I knew he needed those small classes. Think about what your son or your daughter is really like. Their social needs, their spiritual needs, all all important because when you're not there and that social support that first semester that they're used to is not there, they're going to have to find a way to thrive. So ask questions is my second piece of advice to you. Where the transparency is not there, you got that gut feeling, mama, that intuition that you're feeling. Ask that question. When my kid was going back to school for COVID and nobody knew what was going on, I said, hey, coach, how is this going to work out in the gym? He didn't really have an answer because he was hoping we didn't ask. Because <laughs> the very next week, he was about to have them playing flag football 
And we had no idea what COVID was. So don't be afraid to ask the questions that are going to protect your student. Because at the end of the day, you have the best interest. Yes, coach going to tell you he loved your kid. He going to be just like a dad, just like an uncle. Just like is not is. You are mom. You are dad. Look out for your kid. And understand, just like Dr. Hawkins, if said, if he's good, or if she's good, they'll make it to the next level. The priority is getting that education because, y'all, we have got to educate our community. I'm always going to go back to education because, you know, I'm an educator. My mom made sure that we got that education because she knew that is what separate us from the table, but qualified us for the table. you got to get qualified. So I just once again want to thank Dr. Hawkins for coming on. Um, anything new or exciting that you're working on that you would like to share with the audience so they can continue to follow your work? One of the things I'm, I'm looking at is uh, NIL, the name, image, and likeness legislation, where athletes are allowed now to benefit from their the use of their name, image, and likeness. And I see a lot of players at HBCUs are cashing in on that and being able to benefit from that, which I think is a great thing. Yes. You know, I think also, um, you know, at the high school athletes coming out are able to get sponsorship and endorsement. I think that's phenomenal. You yes. know, I think it's it's, it's a small you know, step right towards the, you know, being able to cash in on their talent and abilities, right. you know, but I think it is a, a worthy one, you know, and I'm hoping that a lot more black athletes, I see a lot of black businesses now or, you know, sponsoring athletes and getting exposure. Oh, that's a good you know, idea. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, Y'all it's hear awesome that black entrepreneurs out there? Yeah. Contact Spon- these students and let them be your spokesperson. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about getting visibility, you know, at a national stage, you know, so. I think this is one of the ways you can do that. You know, clothing, I think, is one of the phenomenal things that we see a lot of black athletes are being sponsored with now. You know, right. so yeah, I think there's a great opportunity and a great time for a lot of athletes. That's awesome. Where can we follow you on social media? Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn? Uh LinkedIn, uh, you can find me there. I do have a Twitter account, but I don't have time to keep it. I'm about it. to say, it doesn't sound like you've been in connection with that Twitter account. No, no. I probably look at it once a year. You know, but LinkedIn, I, I try to stay on because a lot of, you know, my former students as well as colleagues are on, you know, is probably the best way to, to contact me. Awesome. So we I'm going to get better with the other stuff. Yeah, got to get better because you have some good stuff that we need access to. Okay, so I'm definitely going to follow you on LinkedIn. And y'all, you can catch this episode on Saturday, May 1st. May 1st, we are ready and live. And what we are going to do going forward is have great topics like this, have amazing speakers like Dr. Hawkins to come on. So our season this season will last from May 1st all the way until September 1st. And I can't wait to enjoy this ride with you. Again, if you have any comments or suggestions for shows, please hit me up. I'm on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Bikita Pegram, and also LinkedIn. So find me there, and I look forward to hearing from you. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and share with a friend. Have a great one. Go forth and be great. Bikita out.